every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and a warm welcome to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday the 11th of July. This is Peter Lewis. This is the original Money Talk and I'd like to thank you for making it one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. You can find it at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com along with my daily newsletter and it's also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China is on the verge of deflation after consumer prices remained unchanged in June and producer prices fell by the most in seven and a half years. Annual consumer prices fell for the fifth consecutive month and at the weakest rate in more than two years. China's annual producer prices sank 5.4% in June compared to the same period a year ago, a ninth straight month of decline and the steepest pace since December 2015. The US banking regulator has announced stricter lending rules for mid-sized banks following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank and First Republic earlier this year. The new rules will require the mid-sized banks to report the effect of losses on their assets on their capital levels and to keep an additional 2% of capital to absorb any losses. Indebted Chinese property developer Kaiser has been served with a winding-up petition in Hong Kong. The court filing by Singapore-based hedge fund Broadpeak Investment relates to the non-payment of 170 million renminbi in onshore bonds. That's worth about 24 million US dollars. And a bearish Goldman Sachs report on Chinese banks, which sent the Hang Seng Mainland Bank Index down 10.5% last week, received fresh rebuke from the mainland on Monday. Merchants Bank, whose shares lost 12% after Goldman's cut its price target on the lender for the second time in three months, said the Goldman's report is illogical in the way it calculates the potential losses, lacks basic common sense, and also overestimates its exposure to the local government financing vehicles. And one of China's largest hedge funds, Shanghai Bankshare Investment, also dismissed the report on Monday, saying the prediction that local government debts would erode Chinese banks' profits and push up their bad loans will likely be proven wrong. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, James Wong, who's chief executive officer at Cathasia Securities, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. On Wall Street, U.S. stocks edged higher on Monday as investors looked ahead to the release of U.S. inflation numbers on Wednesday and a slate of earnings from large banks this week. The three major indices snapped three-day losing streaks. The S&P 500 rose 0.2% to end at 4,410. Industrials led the gains. The Dow added 210 points, or 0.6%, to close at 33,944. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq Composite gained 0.2% to 13,685. Second quarter earnings season kicks off on Friday with banking giants JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup and BlackRock all reporting. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index was boosted at the open by news of the end of the regulatory crackdown on Alibaba, Tencent and other platform companies. At one stage it was up 2.3%, but the city's benchmark index gave up almost three quarters of those gains to end the day 114 points or 0.6% firmer at 18,480. The tech index rose 1.1%, shares of Alibaba jumped 3.2% following the end of the three-year regulatory crackdown. 
On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite climbed 0.2% to 3,204. And futures markets are pointing to gains of about 100 points for the Hang Seng at the open. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And on this Tuesday morning, we welcome our regular Tuesday morning commentator, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Stuart Oldcroft. Morning, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter, on this bright, sunny day, which is still which is a Tuesday morning, as you say. Yep, it's going to be hot and sticky. We welcome also James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. Morning to you, James. Good morning, Peter. And back in Washington, D.C., after his trip across the U.S. for Independence Day last week when we spoke to him, we have with us our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Morning, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Let's start with uh, China's economy. China's annual producer prices sank 5.4% in June compared to the same period a year ago. That's a ninth straight month of decline and the steepest pace since December 2015. The producer price index accelerated downwards from a drop of 4.6% in May, and it was faster than the 5% fall forecast by analysts polled by Reuters. The reading was partly driven by falling commodity prices. And annual consumer prices were unchanged in June, weaker than the 0.2% rise in May, but declined 0.2% compared to the previous month. It was the fifth consecutive monthly fall and the weakest rate in more than two years. I tell you what, James, let me get your thoughts first on this. I mean, looks like there's a real risk of deflation in China at the moment. Yeah, I was talking to some uh, reporters uh, covering China economy, and uh, his words were, uh, it's been uh, 10 years since he's seen like two consecutive months of uh, China's CPI dropping below 0.2%. And uh, it's really something that people are started, starting to feel uh, on their real life. And uh, yeah, it, I think the question all comes down to uh, whether the central government or the PBOC is going to do something to stimulate the economy. And right now, we've, we've for, for, for about uh, a, month, a month and a half now, we've seen rumors flowing around uh, telling us there will be a package of uh, stimulus plans that's going to uh, work on the monetary policy side and fiscal policy side and probably most likely on the uh, real estate uh, property side. And uh, right now, we've seen very few of them. And uh, the uh, the only thing that we've seen towards the uh, end of May, uh, from the end of May to towards uh, mid June, was uh, some slight changes on open market rates. And apparently, that's not enough. And mm-hmm. I, I don't really think that's the end of it. And uh, from what Premier Li Keqiang has said in recent days, I think there will be more. But the problem is, uh, what kind of uh, stimulus there will be, and uh, how uh, how how that how how the uh, stimulus package is going to impact the uh, the real estate pro- uh, the sector? I think the real estate uh, sector is the key of all economic recovery that there might be in China, and uh, so uh, and uh, I think for uh, the past month and a half, there have been two times that uh, the market uh, sees rumors uh, flowing around majorly. Uh, majority of which was on real estate and but we've seen uh, the PBOC only raised five-year LPR uh, by about 10 bips that's a lot lower than what I've expected and even lower than what the state media was expecting 
And mm. I think there will be more. Isn't it, isn't it a bit ironic that uh, here we are worrying about China getting into a deflationary time period after um, sort of quite healthy inflation numbers? And, here, and yet in the West, they are panic struck by the very high levels of inflation. So, you know, it's a, it's a dichotomy in some respects. But, but for consumers in China, deflation is, is not a bad thing. It's, um, it means lower prices. So, um, you know, we, we in the financial world may not like it, but for many consumers, it's actually quite a positive thing. Of course, you have to realize that what, what is the cause of it? And, and, and property prices are very much the, the cause of it, as uh, James has pointed out. And, and China has a very serious property problem. Far too many empty properties, far too many half-built properties, far too much uh, lending against all that. And um, with uh, a, a position where interest rates are sort of fairly flat at the moment, um, it, it's, there's a debt problem as well associated with it. And uh, China is going to have to worry more about that than I think it will need to worry about consumer prices. Are prices falling simply because there's not enough demand? I think so. I think that's so. true, yeah. Barry. Um, the, the demand has fallen off since the recovery from COVID. Um, and, and since people started going out a bit, and uh, they're not spending in the way that had been forecast. Um, and and the, cause, the consequence of that is that you know, not only are they not spending, but the, the, the need to produce goods for them to spend their money on is declining. And I think this is, this is another cause for um, the concerns is being expressed. Barry, let me ask you, this seems to me it could be significant for the US economy and the global economy. The last time we saw deflation or a prolonged period of deflation in China was 2009 uh, during the global financial crisis. And then China exported that deflation around the world. Um, do you think the same thing could happen again? Because if that's true, it's going to have a significant impact for the Fed, for the European Central Bank and their, their outlooks for inflation. Peter, just remind me, or James or Stuart, just remind me, was that the case that the renminbi during that period was weaker than it is today? Did that deflation get exported because Chinese goods were too cheap? Or were there other factors? I think the, the renminbi was at a, a much higher level than it is today compared to the US dollar. Remember yes. that over the last 10, 15 years, the, the RNMB has, um, has strengthened quite heavily against the US dollar. It's weakened recently, but it's been uh, relative to 10, 15 years ago. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a lot stronger as a currency. Yeah, I, I, in answer to your question, Peter, I don't think there's any doubt. Please export some deflation <laughs> to the US because... Uh, you know, we're at four to five percent coming down from nine, but it's still too high for the Fed, which is why interest rates are likely to rise next week. So I think if uh, if the prices on Chinese goods on which we're absolutely dependent, if those prices are going to fall, I think that would be welcome news. 
the problem is, James, doesn't this become sort of like a self-fulfilling spiral, though, that as you start to see um, sort of, you know, deflation, you start to see lower costs at the same time, uh, people start spending less as well because they see the decline in their asset prices, particularly their uh, their, their home prices um, debt starts to uh, starts to grow again. It, it all starts to feed off of itself, doesn't it? Yeah, that's why we we think real estate is the, is the only problem. It's a rudimentary problem that needs to be solved. And uh, there, there was an interesting calculation on uh, home prices in Shanghai based on the uh, income, the the level of increase uh, of incomes uh, for the past ten years, and the level of increase for the in, for uh, home incomes um, expected. Ex- expected for the next 10 years and then a different interest rate so uh, long story short the uh, the the home prices in shanghai based on that discount value uh, discount cash flow model uh, was supposed to be dropping another 15 percent but which mm-hmm. we haven't seen yet mm-hmm. for the entire year for the past year and because uh, first tier cities they've been holding holding up pretty strong on home prices uh, second tier, third tier, not that much. Uh, fourth tier, even uh, pr- uh, a lot worse. So we've we've seen a, a real estate market basically uh, frozen. Uh, people are not willing to sell, not willing to buy. Uh, if prices are falling in China, I wonder what the impact of that is on wages. Uh, one reads that uh, with so many young people coming into the market, their wages are really quite low, much lower than had been expected. But if you've got homeowners with mortgages, then, of course, um, those mortgages uh, are uh, at a higher price. And it's much more of a squeeze if your income is not increasing, let alone going down. Sure. uh, You're right, Barry. But I think, I mean, the issue is also that um, in China, young people, the, the, the unemployment rate among young people is very, very high, 25 percent or more. In, in, in the major cities. And so um, this will be a cause of some discontent. When they can, if they can get into the market, maybe they will bring down wages as well. So wage inflation will, will fall. And um, so, you know, these are, there are lots of consequences about the circumstances that we're discussing here, which um, for the most part are not that good. Uh, and so they will require quite a lot of management by the authorities in China to try to get it right. Um, I'm not sure how they will do it because it's uh, very unclear um, at this stage. But I think we're, what we're talking about is uh, um, some risk in the Chinese economy that uh, things will maybe not go as well as expected. And that might be another reason why um, they're willing to talk again to the U.S. and talk to other parts of the world um, because there is there is benefit in being part of the global community when these things occur. Mm. J- James, what do you make of the latest measures that uh, the, the regulators are putting on banks to try and support property developers on the mainland, in particular trying to get them to extend uh, loans that, uh, that, that are owed by the property developers? And of course, this is coming at a time when we saw that uh, Goldman's report about the banking sector last week and the impact already of existing loans on it. There seems to be a lot of concern yeah. about this. Yeah, I've, 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 it's it's been a long time, or I have, or I have never seen Goldman issue three reports on uh, China banks uh, with a negative view. Uh, it's 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 not normal, and uh, 
of course, I've seen, uh, I can expect China banks have some kind of comeback to Goldman. But I think Goldman is still having a, a dominant saying in the uh, research industry, not like some other banks. So people are treating Goldman's view seriously. But in terms of banking uh, uh, valuations, I think uh, we've all known that uh, the, uh, the the property, uh, the, the quality of capital for China banks are probably not as good as they claim to be. Mm-hmm. So uh, the valuation of banking, the, the China bank sector in Hong Kong has always been low, lower than what the, their counterparts in Asia. So, but that's uh, uh, not going to change anytime soon because uh, it's still bear, uh, bear the cross of being a value trap. So that's probably going to stay another uh, a, a prolonged period of time. And then for the uh, uh, the, the regulators' supports on banks for real estate sector, I don't I don't think that's going to help the real estate sectors um, that much because we've seen right now a, a steep drop in land sales in China. It was a drop of thirty percent annually for the year two thousand twenty-two, and it was. Uh, based on that low base, low, very low base from the uh, from January to May of last year, uh, January to May this year, we've seen another 22% drop in land sales. So we've seen a shrink in both demand and supply for the housing market. And just to let banks support the uh, the uh, uh, real estate developers and uh, uh, probably uh, having uh, having some help on their on their debts are not going to solve the demand and supply shrinking problem. Let me turn, Barry, to uh, Janet Yellen's visit to uh, the United States. She wrapped up her four-day visit saying that US-China ties were on a surer footing despite significant uh, disagreement. She said her visit's going to help build a resilient and productive channel of communication uh, between the, uh, the countries. And she also emphasised that the two countries could benefit from trade. And she tried to stress to Beijing that diversifying supply chains wasn't the same as decoupling. Barry, let me get your personal thoughts first on how you think her visit went. Was it successful in the end? Yes, I don't think there's any doubt about it. It was very successful. However, that's not the way it's being played uh, in the Democratic uh, media and in the Republican media. They both have uh, ganged up on Ms. Yellen, saying that she's embracing a dictator and that it was a mistake that she went there. Uh, they want to focus a lot on the fact that she bowed uh, too much when she met these people. But I think that uh, what you get that, that I think was rather well done was this balance. On the one hand, she said, look, there are lots of issues that remain. The security issue is real. We don't like what China did in terms of the export of these important minerals. Uh, We don't want to have any kind of further problem. We don't want to decouple. She said that diversifying the supply chain is not decoupling or even de-risking. So, I mean, I thought it was quite good. What I find interesting, Peter, is the notion of her saying that there's ample room for trade and investment. There is absolutely no interest among um, United States fund managers to come back now into the Chinese market. I think they may later, but right now, boy, there is remarkable unanimity against China. Mm. I think uh, Yellen did a very good uh, deal with this. Um, 
she will inevitably want to promote the fact that she was in China. She spent four days there. She spent a long time talking to her opposite numbers, and, and she's talked up the purpose of the visit. And certainly from an independence perspe perspective, she looks as though she did a really good job. Of course, uh, the politicians back in Washington uh, who are habitually negative towards China will want to rubbish it. And I think that's where um, there is a, a, a clear problem going on because uh, politicians worldwide are doing the same thing about China and I don't think they are uh, uh, really looking at China in the correct way, you know, I'm, I'm, whatever is the correct way, but, it, but they look at it from a negative perspective, a challenging perspective. They think China is there to, to attack them. Um, none of these things are for real, but it's very difficult for people to be persuaded otherwise, if, especially if they don't get very close to China, they don't visit it, they don't uh, listen to China. Mm. James, how is this being perceived on the mainland, this visit? Uh, I, I think people are uh, still kind of sceptical for Jenny Yellen's visit because uh, before her visit there were uh, uh, several... Um, restrictions coming out of uh, United States. Uh, for example, I think the uh, President Biden is going to sign the executive order to restrict uh, uh, PE funds and uh, uh, venture capitalists to invest in high-tech firms in China very soon. And uh, right now they are saying U.S.-based cloud uh, service providers may not provide services to Chinese companies, and along with a lot of other restrictions that come out of the United States. So People are skeptical, but uh, I think both China and U.S. want to talk to each other because on the U.S. side, even though they are trying to diversify the supply chain, but this whole process might take five to ten years, more likely ten years or so. So they still rely on China for supplies. And uh, on, the, on the China side, I think Barry raised a very good point of young people uh, being having a high unemployment rate. And that high, high unemployment rate uh, just so happens coincides with the decreasing, steep decrease of uh, industrial output for uh, tech firms. And the reason that the uh, industrial, industrial output for tech firms in China has dropped that much since the end of last year has a lot to do with U.S. restriction on tech firms and tech hardwares and softwares. Uh, to China. So I think both these countries want to talk to each other. Mm. Did, do, did the Chinese side, did they buy the argument that the US was, that uh, Janet Yellen was trying to make quite strongly, that diversifying supply chains is not the same as decoupling? And she was trying to say, this is just a sensible response to what we saw happen during the pandemic. And, it, and it's totally natural for countries now not to want to rely on a single country for its supply chains, but that doesn't mean to say the two countries are disengaging. I don't think this is a, a country-level decision. I think it's more like a firm-level or company-level decisions because the uh, manufacturers that I know in China has already uh, lived, are, are learning to live with this kind of transfer or, or uh, shift in production, production chain, uh, in supply chain because... A lot of the uh, the U.S. companies, uh, especially the, the the bigger ones, if they are trying to place an order with a Chinese manufacturer these days, they will probably ask if this Chinese Chinese manufacturer 
has a base outside of China. If they, if the the manufacturer said, uh, to, tell their U.S. customers that no, I, I'm only based in China, th- that order probably won't happen. So this is a, a wide level of uh, company decisions instead of a country level decisions. I think. Mm. What about the other argument that the U.S. was trying to make, Stuart? That U.S. sanctions these are very narrowly targeted on areas that affect national security. And Janet Yellen was went to pains, went to great lengths to try to say, we're not trying to hold back China's economic growth. Do you think that's true? Well, I do think it's true, yes. But I don't think that that would be necessarily agreed upon by senators in Washington. I think they would probably believe otherwise. They, they probably believe that all their sanctions are having a massive effect on China and causing significant damage. I, I don't think that is the case at all. Um, and I think that China, in any event, China would be uh, pretty well placed to find ways to work around those restrictions. Yeah, I disagree a bit uh, with that one, Stuart. I think that um, the Americans and the Europeans and now the Japanese, I think, really are trying to restrain the growth, certainly in the high tech sector in China. So is that capping China's rise? That becomes a semantic issue. I think you could certainly make the case, yes, they are. They're certainly trying to hold them back. Um, We are now five and a half years into tariffs and sanctions. Uh, There's been no movement on this at all. Uh, This is Trump-Biden unanimity, although neither one would want to say so. So uh, we've got a problem here. And uh, we'll see that. But I think Stuart and James, certainly they're correct in saying that these two countries are tied together. I mean, if there's slow growth in China, they'll need to export more to Europe, Japan and America. And the Americans want those low prices. Send us to the deflation. Mm -hmm. Does the Biden administration try to distinguish um, its China policy from what came before it under the Trump administration? Do they? Because they, the Trump administration was openly hostile, wasn't it, in some ways, with all these sanctions it imposed? Does the, the, the Biden administration see itself differently or is it just a continuation of what we saw under President Trump? Well, they do see themselves differently, but they don't talk much about it. And I think when you analyze it, you find that there's no difference at all. Mm. Certainly, looking at it from where I'm sitting, there is no difference at all. Mm. Okay. Um, James, let me get your thoughts on the on the markets. There was quite an interesting reaction yesterday, wasn't there, to the news of, yes. of the end of this three-year tech crackdown on Alibaba, Tencent, and other platform companies after that almost billion-dollar fine for, uh, uh, for Ant Group. Um, but the Hang Seng investors didn't seem to buy into it. Uh, the, the Hang Seng was up at the open, but then gave up uh, most of the gains. Do you think um, investors are not convinced that uh, the problems are over? Uh, yeah, I think they, they're trying to to uh, make use of any kind of good use, uh, uh, any kind of good news uh, these days that are available, because there aren't many right now. Mm. Uh, and and a group being fined a exact number of, of uh, a, a definite amount of money and uh, uh, having the hope of uh, being re uh, being uh, listed as a public company probably in the near future has I think uh, made a lot of investors happy but not that much because we've seen the trading volume still below uh, 900 
billion. So that's uh, that's that 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 basically says the uh, the uh, the the uh, the problem of Hong Kong market right now because people are uh, probably are going to use different kind of news to trade up and trade down, but the trading volume is a lot lower than the average daily trading volume for the past year and for uh, the first quarter. And uh, basically, I think for for the uh, end group itself, it's a good news. And for Alibaba, it's a good news because for uh, the 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 the, the uh, announcement that end group made, basically calculates its own valuation, which is about seventy percent lower than the time that it first filed for a uh, IPO in two thousand and twenty. And but. Seventy percent lower is still a lot better than no valuation or negative hmm. valuation. But that's so still two hundred and twenty billion dollars. It's basically cost the Ant Group it's this, this regulatory it's crackdown. Yeah. Hmm. So I think I think I think that uh, the uh, the crackdown on tech firms has been confirmed to end for about a year now. But this, I think, really draws a, a line that says there will be no more crackdown and all these tech companies are free to go to the capital market and to raise funds. Mm. Stuart, what, what do you think it's going to take to get overseas investors back into Chinese equities? We saw um, a report from Goldman Sachs Prime Services Unit. They say that uh, foreign hedge funds have now unwound 70% of their buying that occurred during that initial euphoria between November and January when China um, eliminated its lockdown restrictions and, and reopened. But foreign investors just don't seem to want to be in the market at the moment. No, and, and the main reason is exactly the same as retail investors, and that is that the market is going down rather than up. I think if there were any sustained upward movement in markets, then we would probably start to see some nibbling. But... Um, it, it'll take a little bit longer. It mm. is basically the market movement. And China has been negative, particularly by comparison to the US. But uh, you know, Europe is, is, is flat, so it's not, not particularly attractive either. Uh, Japan has been very positive, and uh, that's attracted a lot of money. Uh, markets, uh, or sorry, uh, fund managers go where the markets have already moved. Mm. And we always know that. Uh, mm. they, you know, retail investors buy at the top and sell at the bottom. It's a time old adage which has worked for 70 years and it continues to work today. Okay. Barry, could I finish off with you and ask you about some of the US uh, economic data that we've had? Because we've got important inflation data coming out this week on Wednesday, consumer price data and then producer price data from the US on Thursday. We had the jobs reports uh, last week, the ADP report was absolutely stellar, over 400,000 private jobs. But the um, the official job report, uh, a bit more sober, 209,000 jobs last month. Still, though, the jobs market is still pretty strong, isn't it? Absolutely. Look, uh, this is a, a remarkable period in the United States economy. To have interest rates now at their highest level in 16 years, to have uh, 10 successive increases over the last 14, 15 months, and yet to have the unemployment rate at 3.7%, job creation high, economic growth at 2 to 3%. It's a remarkable time. So uh, I see no reason why this wouldn't continue. 
Okay. Well, thank you all very much for your thoughts. You heard there our U.S. economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. Also, James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Carthasia Securities. And then our regular Tuesday morning correspondent, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Stuart Oldcroft. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow with more business and finance headlines. To discuss them, I'll be joined by Enzio von Feil, founder of Financial Shield, and Hao Hong, chief economist at Grow Investment Group. With a view from Japan is Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA. If you want some more information on some of the top stories from the region, please take a look at my daily newsletter on peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.